So hopefully you've had time to get to Nehemiah chapter 10. That's where we're going to be this morning uh, as we dig into our passage. I want to start, uh, as I often do, with just uh, getting you to think a little bit. And I want to ask uh, a question. When you look around us at the culture that we are in, whether that be here locally in our community or in our state or even uh, broader than that, what jobs or, or occupations do you see out there that we as a culture value or that those occupations value a great deal of commitment? What jobs put a high worth in deep levels of the commitment by those who have those jobs. We certainly would understand that there are certain jobs that we give honor and respect to because we understand exactly what the men and the women who do those jobs are agreeing to do when they sign up to do them. Probably it'd be helpful to give a few examples, but I would imagine the examples I give are certainly ones that you have already thought of. We could think of jobs like our armed services, our police, or our firefighters, our teachers, and many, many, many more jobs out there that require a great deal of commitment. We honor them and give them respect because we understand that in some of these jobs, that commitment comes with a great deal of risk and even sacrifice. When you step into these places, you give up your own ideas, you often give up your own comfort, and sometimes you give up even your own plans to live up to the expectations of the job you are walking into. Uh, you do this not for yourself, because if it was for ourselves, we would hold on to all those things. Rather, we do this for someone or something else. We honor these jobs where they require people to look outside of themselves and to serve others instead. We honor them because we know the commitment that they are making. That word commitment is big for us today. Last week, we looked at chapter eight and nine of Nehemiah, mostly in chapter nine, and we saw that the people gathered together with God or, or gathered together with all the people to hear the word of God read. They stood together as a whole people for six hours and listened to the word of God. And then having stood together and heard, they set themselves together corporately to the task of several different things. Just by way of reminder to kind of remember what we heard last week, what we saw the people do is the people remembered God's goodness, they repented of their sin, and they rejoiced in God's righteousness. The people remembered God's goodness. They looked to the past and remembered how God had been good to them at every single point in history. God had even been good to them recently by bringing them back out of exile and into the land that he had promised them. Remembering God's goodness led the people to remember their own sin. God's goodness and his character, when put in front of us, always reminds us of our failings and our shortcomings. We remember that passage in Romans, for all have sinned. And so the people saw God's goodness and they saw their own sin in the face of God's goodness. They saw that it was their own sin that had led them into exile and it was that sin that led them there that they, as a people, needed to repent of, both individually and as a corporate group together. And then having repented of their sin, they rejoiced. Not that they were good enough to repent, not that they were awesome in their own spirituality to do these things, but they rejoiced 
because God is righteous and God is good. And so they rejoiced in his righteousness and his faithfulness to forgive when they repented. We saw that this is indeed a pattern that we need to set for our own lives. Consistently of ourselves digging into the word of God, reminding ourselves of God's character, repenting of our sin and rejoicing in God's righteousness and his forgiveness when we repent. God was faithful to the people of Israel and that God who is faithful then has not changed. He is still faithful to his people. He is faithful to us even today. And so today, it's important for us to see that that was the beginning of their response to what God was doing, but it was not the end. Their response didn't stop in chapter 9, and then we just move on to something else. Rather, as we move to the end of chapter 9 and beginning of chapter 10, we see that their response continues. God was faithful. They were called to respond. And the repentance expressed by Israel, just as it does today, calls for a response. It calls for a change in behavior. Indeed, that's the definition of repentance to turn and walk away from one action and into another. To see that something is not good, something is sin, and indeed we have to turn from that and move in the other direction. Think of it this way. How many of us have ever heard somebody say these words, I'm sorry, only to see the person who said I'm sorry turn around and run right back into the action that led them to say I'm sorry in the first place? Anyone who has ever raised or worked with children knows exactly what I'm talking about. In, in my house, we're at the point of the preemptive, I'm sorry, right? It's that I'm not even in trouble yet, but I think I might have done something wrong. I'm sorry, let me see what happens, right? I'm sorry that I went off the top rope WWE style onto the dog. I'm sorry. Let me run back to the other side of the couch and do it again, uh, right? Well, we would know that that's not repentance. That is not true repentance. Repentance says, I know that that action was, was wrong, and the desire of my heart is that I never do that again because it is wrong. The people of Israel are repenting. They are showing signs of true repentance, and true repentance calls for a change in action. Often with our students, I share it this way. Belief determines behavior. If we really believe that an action is wrong, if we really believe that something is sin, then the call of our heart as we follow Christ is to not do that because we know that sin is committed against a good, good father. And so the belief of our heart in that wrongness leads us to different action. It leads us to repentance. It leads to a change in behavior. And I think that this is the core message of chapter 10. The people of Israel, having repented of the sin that led them into exile, are now going to recommit themselves to certain actions that will set them apart from the world around them. It will also set them apart from who they have been. They are saying that we are going to be different than we were, and we're going to be different than the world around us. So I want to start at the very end of chapter 9, the last verse here in chapter 9, verse 38, and move into the beginning of chapter 10, and notice some important things as we get started and walk through this passage together. 
So look with me there at Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 38. In view of all of this, but everything in chapter 9, right? All of the things that God has done, the way that they sinned, and how God was good to them and called them back and was faithful. In view of all of this, we are making a binding agreement in writing on a sealed document containing the names of our leaders, Levites, and priests. Those whose seals were on the document were the governor Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, and Zedekiah. So here's what's happening. The people are serious about their commitment to return to God and follow him. So they all together agree to put in writing their commitment. And everyone wants in on it. Everybody wants in on what they're about to do. So they'll go about signing all of their names onto this document. Now, just real quickly, I am not nearly as brave as Pastor Scott is. So I'm not going to even try to read all of these names, all right? I'm going to let them sit, and you can walk through them, and you can do the best that you can in your own head to figure out exactly how they sound and what they sound like and how I might have probably messed them up when I said it. I'll let you do that on your own, but I'm not going to try. We're not going to walk through all the names, but I do think in this list there's some important things for us to pull out and focus in on. The first thing I think is important for us is to see the, the order in which this list is given, we see that it starts with Nehemiah, the governor, the leader, and along with him, the other leaders who are at that top tier. And then it gives to us the priests, it moves from Nehemiah to the priests, and then from the priests to the Levites. We see these are the people that are working and doing the work of the temple. And it moves from them to the heads of the people who are there. This list points towards the fact that that change and that leadership gives the way to follow. We cannot as leaders, and if there's anyone that we are influencing, all of us carry influence in somebody's lives. There are parents and grandparents and team captains. There are coworkers and friends. We all lead people. And the reality is, is we cannot lead people Somewhere we've never been and somewhere we're not willing to go. Nehemiah says that if this change is going to take place, it has to start with me. The leaders of Israel say if change is going to happen, it has to start with us. And so they're the first ones to put their name down on the list. They take their seal and they say, this is for me. I am going to be the one that changes. I am going to change my action because God is good and faithful. And so I'm going to follow him. But then we read through this list and we get down to verse 28. And look at verse 28. It says, The rest of the people, the priests, Levites, gatekeepers, singers, and temple servants, along with their wives, sons, and daughters, everyone who is able to understand and who has separated themselves from the surrounding peoples to obey the law of God. Verse 28 says, The rest of the people. This list certainly is not exhaustive. It doesn't list every single person in the nation of Israel who is in Jerusalem at the time. Rather than being exhaustive, this list is representative. We see the leaders of the people. But what that tells us is that the leaders of the people knew who was in and they knew who was out. They knew who was making the commitment to follow and they were serious about holding them to that. They were not giving room for people to ride the fence to be committed but not act like it. 
to maybe act like it, but not say it out loud. They weren't allowing people room for that. When we approach the call to be disciples of Christ, we need to follow the example of the people here, the people of Israel. They made a public commitment to God, to following him, to doing what it takes. Being together and being public, they couldn't hide from their commitment. And being together, they had the support and the accountability for their commitment. This is why what we do here in this building is so important. Not that the building is important, but the people in it are the church. And church is important. There's no room, I'm convinced, in Scripture for the growing, healthy believer to exist outside of the fellowship of the church. Because here in the fellowship of the church is where God has designed for us to grow, to be held accountable, and to serve one another. And so the people are in this together. They are all together, all in on what they are about to do. But what are they about to do? What is about to happen? There's an important word in this that we haven't used yet, but it's a very important word biblically, and that word is covenant. A covenant is another word for a promise that is made between two people, or, or if you want to say it this way, for a, a legal binding agreement. This is a big word and a big theme in Scripture, that God has made a covenant with his people, and that God has set his people apart as covenant people. Through Abraham, through Jacob, through David, God has made Israel his covenant people. He repeats the line again and again, I will be your God and you will be my people. So the people are about to make a covenant, I want you to catch this, to keep a covenant. God has already established a covenant with them, but they broke that covenant. In fact, that's why they were in exile in the first place. That's why their city was destroyed. That's why they were taken away from their homes. They had broken the covenant of God. They had spurned God. They had said, we don't want anything to do with you. They had fallen into false worship and rejected his covenant. Now, God had told the people in this time of exile and in this time of difficulty, he said, I know that you broke my covenant. But I need you to know that I am faithful and I am good and I am going to bring to you a new covenant. The people heard from Jeremiah that this would be a lasting covenant that would never fade and it would never go away. Jeremiah 31 verse 31 says this, look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. This one will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors on that day. I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, even though I am their master. The Lord's declaration. Instead, this is a covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will one teach his neighbor or his brother saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them. This is the Lord's declaration. For I will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sin. The people knew that they had broke the covenant of God. They had failed on their side of the old covenant. But God had promised them a new covenant. We know that that new covenant arrives in Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah. But the people here aren't there yet. 
They're on the other side of Jesus waiting. So what are they going to do? We broke the old one. We know there's a new one coming, but we're not there yet. What are we going to do? So they agree. They say, God, we're going to have faith in you that you are bringing to us a new covenant. And in our faith, we are going to commit ourselves to holding to the old covenant. They're making a contract. They're saying, God, we will agree to this and we will hold ourselves to that. And a contract has very specific points of action. And I think those specific points speak to us in a very important way today. So let's look exactly at what the people are covenanting to do. What are they promising God that they will do in response to their repentance and faith? Jump down to Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 30. And let's read a few verses here as we talk about what the people are promising to do. Verse 30, chapter 10. We will not give our daughters in marriage to the surrounding peoples, and we will not take their daughters as wives for our sons. When the surrounding peoples bring merchandise or any kind of grain to sell on the Sabbath day, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or a holy day. We will also leave the land uncultivated in the seventh year and will cancel every debt. We will impose the following commands on ourselves to give an eighth of an ounce of silver yearly for the service of the house of our God. The bread displayed before the Lord, the daily grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbath and new moon offerings, the appointed festivals, the holy things, the sin offerings to atone for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. Verses 34 through 39 continue in that same vein. Three things I think that we see here the people are promising to do. The first one in verse 30, the people make a promise to be holy, a promise to be holy. To understand where we get holiness out of verse 30, I think we need to remember some context here. What happens when one nation would conquer another nation in this time period? Well, Babylon had come in. They had laid siege to Jerusalem. They attacked it four times, finally conquering it completely. And then what they would do is they would take the people of Jerusalem and they would divide them up. And they would take many of the people of Jerusalem and they would carry them off. That's where we get stories like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Many of the prophets were prophesying from exile. They were off in Babylon. They were away from their home because Babylon had captured them and carried them away. But it's not just the carrying away from Babylon's point of view. See, Babylon wants to do whatever it can to make sure that in this area, rebellion doesn't foam it. You just leave the people there, and what are they going to do? Well, they're going to start to try to govern themselves again, and they're going to start to rise up and become a nation again. So what do you do? Well, what they would do is they would bring in other people from other places that they had conquered, right? This is the, the whole place or the reason why we have a, a people in the New Testament called Samaritans. Right? They were a, a mix of people who were of Israel and people who were from other nations. Right? And so, so they have carried away many of the Jews, but they've also brought in other people. As you can imagine, as time goes on, Jews in exile, as well as those that have other foreigners around them, begin to intermarry with these other people. Now, I want to be clear what the Bible says. It is not the intermarrying with foreigners that is a problem. That's not the issue. The issue is that Israel, in the intermarrying, has compromised their own faith because they are marrying into people who do not worship God and not calling for people to repent of their sin and turn to God. 
This even, verse 28, gives room for those people who are foreigners yet have turned to God. What does it say, right? The priests, Levites, gatekeepers, singers, temple servants, along with their wives, sons, and daughters, everyone who is able to understand and who has separated themselves from the surrounding peoples to obey the law of God. See, the people had intermarried and in doing so had fallen back into false worship. And so they were saying, now we will do whatever it takes to remain holy and stay committed to God. They're willing to separate themselves from everyone for the sake of holiness. Our commitment to God must start with a commitment to holiness. This is not an Old Testament idea. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15 and 16 says, But as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, Be holy because I am holy. Repentance leads to a change in action. When we follow God, we can no longer live in those old ways and that old self doing those old things. In repentance, we turn from them and we say, God, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to obey you. Repentance leads to a change in action. Belief determines behavior. If we believe in God and if we believe in his word, we will look and act different in the world around us. Israel is saying they're not going to allow anything to stay in their lives that would remove from them the worship and the holiness that God calls them to. Is there something in our lives that often rears its head up and steals from us our holiness? Some temptation to sin, some anger or bitterness. What is stealing our holiness and keeping us from obedience? The first thing that people do is they commit to holiness. They make a promise to be holy. The second thing that people do is they make a promise to rest and trust. Look at verse 31. When the surrounding peoples bring merchandise or any kind of grain to sell on the Sabbath day, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or a holy day. We will also leave the land uncultivated in the seventh year and we will cancel every debt. There are three parts, I think, of this covenant obligation. A commitment towards what we would call the Sabbath. First, they make a commitment to the Sabbath Day, a day of rest every week. They are so committed to this that they're even cutting out any chance for a loophole, right? What does it say? When the surrounding peoples bring merchandise or any kind of grain to sell on the Sabbath day, we will not buy from them, right? There is this loophole, right? Like, well, I'm not actually the one working here, right? I'm just walking around the market, and if I happen to see something, I might just happen to buy it. Right? They're, they're cutting out the opportunity for them to fall accidentally into any kind of sin here. They're cutting out the loopholes. They're saying we are so serious about our rest on the Sabbath that we're not even going to allow other people to invade that time of rest. Second, they commit to holding to the sabbatical or the Sabbath year. Now, let's just be honest. This is something that from a human earthly standpoint, makes no sense whatsoever. Just go and talk to a farmer and ask them if every seven years just taking a whole year off and not growing anything or doing anything makes any sense. I can tell you the farmers in my family would say, (laughs) no, it doesn't make any sense. 
Why in the world would you let the land sit fallow? Would you not grow those crops? I mean, we need those crops. We need to eat. We need to survive. We need to be provided for. Why would we let that sit? Because God is a better provider than that field. God will give you more than you could ever ask if you trust him. See, rest is about trust. The third thing they commit to is canceling all the debts as God has commanded them to in the seventh year. (laughs) Again, ask a banker if this makes sense. The answer is no. Canceling all debts, just telling people, well, you made it to seven years, so I guess you don't have to pay that back. That doesn't make any sense. How, How am I supposed to live? I've lent them money. I gave that to them. I'm depending on them paying that back to me again because God can provide in more ways than just you holding other people. Your forgiveness of that debt speaks more to what God can do than you're holding them to it. These things don't make sense. These places of rest don't make sense. And and in our culture today, they still don't make sense. We don't live in a culture and in a place that values rest. We live in a place where the phrase is often repeated, I'll rest when I'm dead. And that is not what God wants for us. That is not God's good plan for our lives. But we grind and we grind and we grind and we think if I just do a little bit more and add just a little bit more. When we don't rest, we don't trust. God is calling his people to trust and his people are saying, we will trust you so much that we will do what you've called us to do. We will rest in you. The people must trust. Rest, trust, they're connected in a way that we cannot pull them apart. Cannot take them away from each other. And so the question here for us is, are we willing to slow down enough to rest and trust in God? Are we willing to lay aside the the need to take off after every single opportunity and make sure we never miss out on anything because we don't know if something better is going to come along or not? Are we willing to trust that what God brings to us is what's best for us? And so we will just rest in him. Rest with God for all of our lives. The people make a promise to be holy. They make a promise to rest and to trust. Finally, they make a promise to give. Look at verse 32. We will impose the following commandments on ourselves to give an eighth of an ounce of silver yearly for the service of the house of our God, the bread displayed before the Lord, the daily grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbath new moon offerings, the appointed festivals, the holy things, the sin offerings to atone for Israel. And for all the work of the house of our God, we said it earlier, but if we were to continue to read, we're going to see all the different things that the people would bring. We could jump down to verse 35 and we could see the the first fruits of our land and every fruit tree of the Lord's house year by year. And uh, verse 36, all the firstborn sons and the firstborn livestock is prescribed by the law. They continue and continue. The people are committing to give to support the work of the ministry and the temple. I think there's two things that this says for us today. First, the people are committing to stay in the presence of God. They're committing to stay close to God. Why? All of the things that they're offering to give and they're offering to bring are the things that kept worship moving in the temple. They're bringing the wood so that sacrifices can be given. 
They're bringing the animals that will be the sacrifices. They're bringing the bread that goes on the table. They're bringing the food, the, the priests and the Levites. They don't have the option to go out and work and have a farm, and so they need food. And so they're bringing in to support the, those who are doing the work in the temple, the priests and the Levites. They're, they're bringing in the things that allow worship to happen. And remember, the temple is the place where the people meet with God. There's the Holy of Holies and the priest would go into the Holy of Holies one time a year and he would hear from God and they would offer sacrifices in the holy place and they would bring these before the Lord and the people would gather in the courtyard to hear the priest to share with them what God has given and they would worship together and they would be in the presence of God at the temple. So when they give, what they're doing is they're giving to say, we are going to stay as close as we can to God and we're going to do whatever it takes to make sure that we stay in and near his presence. We're not going to trust in my own wisdom and my own understanding. I'm not going to look to myself and try to do it on my own. Rather, I'm going to stay as close to God as I can. Second, it shows that they trust God more than they trust in their stuff or their money. They give of the first fruits, the first made, the first born to the service of the temple. They don't wait to see all that God is going to give them before they decide how much they can give. They say, God has blessed me, and I am immediately going to turn that back to God. They don't say, mm, well, if, if I have this and I get more of this, then that's great and I can give this, but i got to wait until I get more and more and more. And then once I have all the stuff I think I need, then I can give. Then I can follow. No, they are giving of the first fruits. The moment the fruit is ripe, they are pulling it off the tree and taking it into the temple. The moment that lamb is born, they are saying, this is the Lord's. That son, they are taking saying, this, this one will serve in the temple however God has called. They don't wait to see what God will give them. They give what he has given. And they trust that he will continue to give them all that they need. Now, we don't worship in the same place. We don't worship in the same way. We don't point ourselves to the temple and we don't say there are sacrifices to give God has given us a new covenant, and so we don't sit under those old obligations anymore. But that new covenant says that what? Now we, the church, the people, are the body. We are the temple. So the place and the manner of worship are different, but the call to give remains the same. The call to support the work remains the same. Where the people are gathered, the work of ministry is being done. The people committed to giving what they had and what was needed, silver and wood and animals and bread. These were the resources that they had to give to keep worship happening. What are the resources that we have to give? We give of our money. We give of our time and serving. We give of our talents to find ways that God has blessed us and gifted us, and we take that into the ministry to do the work in the church. God has given us so much, and in trust, we turn and we give that back to God. We give Him the first fruits. The people are making a promise to give. So we see here that the people have made a promise to be holy, to separate themselves from sin and do whatever it takes. They're making a promise to rest in God because they trust God to provide for them and they make a promise to give. They say, out of the goodness that you have given me, we will give back to you that the ministry and the worship may continue to happen. 
What do we do with all this? Why are these the commitments that the people highlight? This certainly isn't an exhaustive list of every law given in the Old Testament. We would say if the people are covenanting to keep the old covenant, then they would certainly be doing more than just these things. Well, they highlight these things because they are representative of how we point the entirety of our lives back towards the Lord. The point of our families is the Lord. The point of our rest is the Lord. The point of the temple is the Lord. When we point our families towards the Lord, when we have parents who love and honor God, then we can make sure that Deuteronomy 6 is happening, that the children, the next generation are being taught in the Lord when we rise up and sit down and when we go about our way. And when children are being taught what is right and good in the Lord, then we can say we will see them hold to the Old Testament law and the Ten Commandments. The point of our rest is the Lord. When we rest from the constant struggle and grind of the world around us, of trying to make much of ourselves, of trying to catch every opportunity, we just rest and say, God, I'm going to trust that what you bring to me is what is good for me. We point ourselves to the Lord and say it's about him and it's not about me. When we point ourselves to the work and give to the work of, of the church, we're saying it is about God, his kingdom, and his work. It's about the Lord. And the people here are committing to realign the entirety of their lives in the direction of God. And they're serious about it. Serious enough to put their names and their seals on a piece of paper and say, I want the whole nation and all of history to see what I am committing to do. Now, we don't live in the old covenant. God has given us a new and better covenant in Jesus Christ. So how will we respond to that new covenant? We have new life in Christ, forgiveness bought and paid for with his blood, a second chance given to us by his defeat of death and sin in his resurrection. Will we rest in that? When we have when we walk into faith, we walk into the new covenant, just as with Israel through Christ, we are his people and he is our God and we are the church. Will we give to the work of ministry? This call is not a halfway call. Scripture doesn't allow us to take it part of the way and say, I'll do this and not that. Instead, it is an all-in call. Are we willing to respond the same way that Israel did? with the same level of seriousness about our faith that Israel had. A commitment to obey God and his word, to be holy, a commitment to trust in him enough to rest, and a commitment to serve and to give to the work of ministry and through the church. Are we willing to commit just as Israel did? I'd like to take a moment and pray. If you bow your heads, close your eyes, the worship team's gonna come back here. The call to repentance is a call to response. We know that anytime the word is read, there is a call to respond. Whenever we hear God's word, we respond to it. We have to respond. And, and here this morning, we see a call to respond that is a call to holiness call to rest and a call to service and giving. So where are we at with those things? 
Scripture is asking us at this point to examine our own hearts and to look at our own lives and say, is there a place where sin has, has reared up in my life and is not allowing me to live holy and live connected to the presence of God? Today, I would encourage you to repent of that sin. Turn away and commit your life to Christ. Is there a place where we just have a hard time finding space to rest? We won't just give to God this opportunity or we won't just walk away from something and say, this is a time for me to stop and to rest in Christ. I can't, I, I feel in my heart, I just can't hand this over to God. Believer, will you rest and trust? Will you hand it to him and say, God, whatever you're going to do with it is better than whatever I could do with it anyway. And so I'm just going to rest in you. I'm just going to trust in you. I'm not going to grind for every opportunity. I'm just going to do faithfully the work you've called me to do and trust you in it. Is there a place where God is calling you to give? Maybe it's time. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's service. Is there a place where God is calling you to step in and serve him and do the work of ministry and support the work of ministry? And you've just said, I got, I got all these excuses. I got all these things. I don't, have, I don't have time to be there and to serve. I got so much going on. I have so many obligations. I have so many bills. Can we just commit to trusting God enough to give? Give of ourselves. Give of our resources. Are we willing to be serious enough about it to talk to somebody? First, talk to him. Here in a moment, we're going to pray. and This altar is open and maybe there's something today, some point of rest, some point of giving, some point that, that you need to say, I need to get right with God and, and walk back into holiness. This altar is here for you to speak to him talk to him. Christ has made way for us to walk boldly into the throne room of God and just lay ourselves down and say, God, I'm giving myself and this issue up to you in this moment. Please work in my heart. Maybe you need to grab a trusted friend and say, will you just, will you just pray with me as I walk through this? Maybe it's there in your seat or maybe it's at the altar. Or maybe you need to talk to somebody else. I'll be down here in the front row. You can come talk to me. Maybe the response is just to say, God, I'm trusting you in this moment and to, to sing and to worship with the fullness of your heart. And let your song be a commitment to him. As we pray and as we sing, I, I, whatever's on your heart, I pray that you would just allow God to work and move and respond as he's calling you to respond. God, you are good. You are faithful. And whenever we remember your goodness and your faithfulness, we also see our own sin. So God, we, we turn from it. We repent of our sin. We walk away from it. So that we can walk closer to you. Walk in obedience to you. God, I pray that this room is full of people who are committing now to a life of holiness, a life of rest, a life of giving and service to you.
let us be serious about those commitments. We love you. We thank you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.